Shalom everyone, welcome to another episode of The Upper Room. Uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, today we've got a great episode lined up for you. It says that the saints overcome the enemy by the uh, the blood of the Lamb and the power of the testimony. So today we've got a, an amazing uh, testimony uh, lined up for you. My guest today, it's been described that she walks with the gift of boldness and to come on here and to give your testimony and to share that with an audience is is certainly bold. Um, so without further ado, my guest today, Katie, how are you doing, my love? Hello, Dad, and I'm okay. Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for asking me to come on. Yeah, it's um, it's no easy thing to come on here and uh, and and just uh, share your story. But I know that you've got an amazing uh, an amazing story to tell, and um, I think what would be great is if we just start at the beginning. Okay. Um, maybe uh, share a little bit about uh, your background, growing up in the area, and uh, we'll take it from there. So okay, thank you. Yeah, so my name's Katie, and I'm a recovering addict. Um, I'm used to identify myself as an addict. Um, through the fellowship that I'm in. So I grew up in Spittle, which is quite, is that better? That's right, Which yeah. is quite a nice area around here. Um, I come from, it was it was quite a, it was quite a loving and caring family. Um, me mum and me dad, they're no longer with us, like um, brought me up and I've got an elder brother and sister. Um, so me childhood was quite normal. I had quite a normal childhood, do you know what I mean? But yeah. because my parents both worked in Spittle, it's like I keep saying, it's a nice area. I was like the kid who had to have childminders and let myself in from school. And I was very sensitive as a child, looking back. Um, wasn't really good at handling my emotions. Um, so what happened from there was my mum and dad separated. So my mum left the family home when I was in my last year at primary school. Um, which I think had a bit of an impact on me. And I actually used to go to church, you know. Right, okay. I used to go to church. It was called Holy Trinity in Spittle. None of my family did. My mum believed in God. My dad didn't. My brother didn't. And my sister didn't really have a view. But something in me used to take me to a little church of a Sunday with my friend who used to live around the corner. And then I used to go to a club on a Friday called Pathfinders. Right. Which was so, uh, like you know where you'd go when you went to church. So I've always had a thing about God. I don't know what it is in me. I've always um, I've always known that, that that he exists, basically, and um, Yeshua. So, yeah, it is it is mad when you think about it that that's what I used to do. You know, eight, nine, ten years of age, take myself around to church every Sunday. Um, and then my mum and dad got back together. They'd been separated for about six months, I think. And then... Um, when they got back together, we moved areas and we went to live in New Ferry down down Shorefields in the Wimpy Houses. And I went to high school, and um, I started as you do, like down the park with your mates. I started, you know, drinking. I think I was, I think we, I was about, I don't know if I was in the second or third year, like when you get um, drunk with your friends over weekends, and then in the fourth, fifth year, I think I um, progressed more to weed. I used to smoke loads of weed. With me mates, and we used to go. Um, I used to go to the Beb Youth Club and that, and um, have a weekend. Like a lot of my friends had boyfriends and that, but there was me and my friend Sue, who's passed away now, um, and a couple of others. Obviously, just used to focus on getting stoned all the time. Mm. 
Um, so we used to like do buckets and smoke like loads of joints and then I'd have to go home. We lived in Eastham at this point. I'd moved with my dad because my mum and dad had divorced again and I went to live with my dad. And um, I remember some nights walking home, like stones off my head, having to go through like this little cut through. Um, what happened then? I, I left school. I, I was um, I was expelled from school in the uh, fourth year. It was called exclusion at that time for like three weeks due to my behaviour. What, what sort of age was that roughly, do you reckon? I was in the fourth year when I got excluded, so I would have been about 15. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's because, um, as I said before, I've recently had an ADHD diagnosis. Okay. So when I was in school, if something didn't interest me, I was very disruptive because I couldn't focus on certain um, lessons. And I think with what was going on at home, that because um, constantly seeing your parents argue has a massive effect on you. Um, that I just used to act out on school. I just always like a laugh, me dad, and so I've always been the kid to make everyone laugh and can't control me impulsivity when I say things, which is what I'm learning about myself now. I mean, I'm 50 and, and I got the diagnosis about two months ago. Right. So my brain's a little bit different from other people. So I have um, an issue with oversharing, which means tell everyone my business right. and I can't keep my thoughts in. Okay. So they just used to like call me disruptive in school, lazy, doesn't focus, doesn't concentrate, blah, blah, and all that. So... Yeah, my schooling wasn't very good. So I got excluded in the fourth year. My dad ended up going in with a big sob story about, oh, uh, you know, uh, me and her mum are getting divorced and she's under a lot of pressure, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they let me back in. I had to sign this mad little uh, written contract thing to say I, I wouldn't be disruptive and all that, but I just continued. So I was just getting stoned all the time and I quite liked it, getting drinking of a weekend with my mates. And then... Um, when I was in my last year of high school, it was 1989, I think, so the rave scene happened. Right, yeah. yeah. Is it the summer of love and all that? Yeah, yeah, so it, it was all the rave scene. So I started going to a nightclub in Liverpool called The State and um, started experimenting with other drugs. I think I was in my fifth year, defo, or I'd just left school. So I was 16, so we started like... Um, just gonna, just gonna bring that round so I can. Uh, Is that okay? So yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I started like um, sniffing rush, taking acids. We used to have little trips then. What was rush? Rush. It's like a, it's like a bottle. What you oh, put the, under your uh, nose? Was it amyl nit the nitrate? Yeah, poppers. I don't know the official right, word. Yeah, I yeah. just know that I used to get it shoved poppers, up my nose. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I just remember that immense feeling and yeah and and sort of wanting to come down from it and and all the acid I used to take not like every night just like have a weekend and speed ecstasy um I went to college and I was still like partying and me and my mates used to like go out Friday Saturday and then um while I was still in college I met me first partner who's the father of my eldest daughter and um he was actually on home leave from prison. Right. So I sort of knew at the time, but I think I was attracted to the naughtiness of right. like, oh, someone from jail and that. And I didn't realise at the time, but he was a heroin addict. Right. And home leave is when, home um, leave is when, when you're coming to the end of your sentence. Yeah, well, right? before they come out, they get assessed and that, and then they let them come out for, for a weekend. So I met uh, my eldest daughter's dad. Right. And it was like a... a romantic story because I met him on Sunday night in the Primrose like off my head and then um, 
he didn't go back to jail because apparently he fell in love with me that night. Or oh, you know, so he 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 was on the um, gear, which is heroin. And um, so at this point, it was purely like it starts off experimenting in yeah. the park with your mates. Then it gets into the party scene, and you're just having a good time. And then before you know, like the the heroin's like but coming. Before into you it. know, it, the class A is coming. Right. Yeah. So what happened then was when I was. I was when I was eighteen. I was working in McDonald's in Bromborough. The store had just opened. I'd been there about a year. I was with me um, eldest daughter's dad, and I was like partying like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights, getting stoned every night. Um, I ended up losing my job because I was so unmanageable. Because I was just rolling. I was doing shift work, and like I'd come in ten, fifteen minutes late, you know, like stoned. Or there was some shifts I went to when I'd been up all night with me pupils like that because I'd yeah. been tripping, and um, I ended up getting sacked. So I was like, you know, still living with me dad in Eastham, and God bless him. I re- I remember going home, and um, me dad was always like dead proud of me. I found out basically, dad, and when I was. When I was 19, the man who raised me isn't my biological father. Wow. My biological father is actually my dad's brother. So my mum had um, had a thing with my dad's brother. Wow. And how old were you when you found this out? 19. And I was actually on the gear then. And um, I was pregnant with my eldest daughter. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So... So me dad, I still call him me dad. He's he's up with God now, but I still call him me dad. So he was like always dead proud of me. He gave me all this love and affection and used to buy me absolutely. I was a spoiled child, basically. Anything I wanted, I got anything. I remember the only two things he never got me was a scale electric and a pair of fatter <laughs> pants. I had like, oh, me mates will tell you from school, I had like the best trainers in school, the best coats. Um, anything I wanted, he gave me, but I realised now it was guilt because he right, was yeah. looking at me every day and I was his brother's child. And wow. then from what from what I gather, we moved to South Africa. I always knew that I lived in South Africa for a few years when I was like about six months old till okay. I was about two or three. And I now realise piecing everything together because my dad took me on as his own. He took us to South Africa to get away from the fact that obviously I was his brother's child. So I think that had an awful lot to do with when I found out, because I always knew when I was a kid, it's weird. Something's it's, going on. Yeah, it's weird. But it you just, just, you just as a child, you intuitively know, like deep inside. Yeah. Like you don't necessarily have to know that. Yeah. Because I always got, I always got everything I wanted. So they always, my brother and sister. I mean, they're lovely people, but I, I could like just demand something and I got it. And right. it was, uh, and it was just comments that were made by me. Nah, no, doesn't she look like someone? And I've, my hair. I mean, obviously it's dyed and it looks a mess today. But when I was a kid, it's naturally curly, so my hair was like big curls. Yeah. I used to get called mophead in school. Yeah, it's yeah. like it was so curly, it was unbelievable. And um, my dad didn't have curly hair, you see. But the man who is my biological father, wow. who I call my uncle, has got curly hair. See, like even. No matter what the circumstances is in your life, like finances, uh, background, upbringing, that is like finding that out at, at any age is is a it's is traumatic. massive. It's traumatic, but I think at that point, like you said, you, you you're using you you're just coming to a point where you're pregnant, and then you yeah. find it out. Like that's that's um that's massive to deal with. Yeah, but you see, what I've realised now because the um, heroin is a depressant. It subdued loads of me feelings. That that was my thing. So as soon as I took it, 
And was there like a crossover time? Is that a similar time when you found all of these things out about your, your dad? It and was then before you st- I found out about my dad. So you were using, yeah, and then you then you came. Yeah, into I was nine. That. I was nineteen. I tried methadone. I was given methadone by um, me, me, me eldest daughter's dad's brother when we'd gone out to. I remember it was atmosphere one night. I was only about eighteen because when when I lost my job, my dad kicked me out. He didn't like say. Or get out, but he used to stop on the motorway to wake me up. That's how good of a man he was. I, I was, I'm blessed that he, who I had to raise me, he used to like phone me of a morning, get up, get up. And then one morning, I didn't get up, and because I was always stoned, so like I was just sleeping. It just used to go home like stoned and and go to sleep. So I remember one morning he phoned and he was like, "You lazy little madam, get out." And he didn't think I would, so I was just turned eighteen. So I did. I just went and I went to um, live with someone I was friends with who was older than me and a um, husband and a daughter. And then I ended up getting a bed sit in New Ferry. Right. So it was above Tom's carpet shop. So I was like 18 with my own bed sit and freedom. So I didn't have a job. I'd been sacked. So I was just like I just I had to sign on the dole and then I had a little job in the um, spa. So like I had this party house and it was eight bedsits done. So it was a house above a carpet shop with eight bedsits. So it was party central. So I was 18. Like there was only me and my friend who had our own places at this time. And my friends just used to come around and we'd, we would party Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I worked twice a week. Um... And uh, I could just basically do what I wanted. So I was a girl who'd been nurtured all her life and and I had to move into this bed so I didn't have a clue about like buying my own food or, you know, bills and things like that. And it was just it was quite a good time looking back because we were just all we were just all eighteen year olds going out, but like we were partying hard. So we were like, you know, you'd go out raving whatever you'd get about two hours sleep if that off the speed and then I was going in to do a shift uh, uh, for about eight hours I think he used to work on a Saturday like with no sleep like coming down off speed and that it's it's mad because when you think um uh, I, I certainly remember around that age when things started escalating for me in terms of what I was using and getting into <clears throat> you think that you're a that you're an adult and you made yeah. it but you look at an 18 year old now and they're like they're babies yeah and you're like wow like can't believe that's what I was doing at that age because yeah. they look so so young. But yeah, because I've got three other daughters. One's nineteen, one's seventeen, and one's fourteen, and they're just not like how I was. Right, I'd go mad if they were. I'd go <laughs> mad if they if they were like that. They don't live with me, but so it just went on from there. And then when I had the math was when I was in the bed sitting. I remember just my friend Lucy now always says to me I've known her since I was 11 she says you've changed when you took that when you first tried that because you were dead confident and kicking off on everyone right and then what happened then what, was you, when, when you started taking yeah, no, the meth yeah no I just had methadone once I was Method- just giving it yeah methadone 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 yeah so it's a substitute no 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 so methadone it's the substitute for heroin I wasn't prescribed I was just given it by me my partner's brother just like because I was just taking anything that you'd give me so were you always like you were just always open to whatever was like you weren't like necessarily going out to seek right I'm going to do a bit of this it was just like people would come I've got a bit of this and then you'd just be like all right I'll have a go yeah I like the way that the drugs made me feel most they they were were doing something to me that was 
um, changing the way I felt, I suppose. And when I tried heroin, that was it. It was, it was, it just, it's like, um, it's like a, a warm glow. Right. It's like there's loads of people in our fellowship, and and I describe it like that myself. It's like you know the Ready Brack advert from years ago, where you see like the the central heating for kids. Yeah, that, yeah. that's that's what it was like. Um, and personally, like I, I thank God that that never came into like my social environments uh, uh, growing up, um, because I was always I was always scared of, of of heroin. But then I would look at how much people loved it. And yeah. I thought, well, I'm just going to be honest. Like, it must be really good because people like will put anything to the side to, to have it. And then when you hear like descriptions of what it feels like, like it 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 sounds like it just kicks everything else out of the out of the water. It does. It does. There's um, I'm not promoting it by any way. No, it no, absolutely no, no. destroys your life. It just it it tears your soul apart, and you do so much for it because you get so addicted, but it just made me feel so different. And at, at this point, so me, me partner, I was 17, met him. He went back to jail, this big love story, like three months later, got nicked. He was like a criminal. And then um, I got this bed sit, waited for him. He, he came out, and then um, I got another flat, which me dad paid for. He always come and like gave me deposits for properties. He'd asked me to go home, and I told him no. And then... Darren's dad was always like, because um, of what he did, um, he was always coming in with money overnight. And then one day I just asked him if I could try it. He was using in the house, like they used to smoke the gear and that him and all his mates. And I just, I kept asking him and asking him, I wanted to try it, even though I knew. I mean, I was from the generation, I'm 50, so my generation was like, used to have a magazine it sounds mad called the smash it that like me and oh, yeah. mates. do you remember smash yeah, it yeah 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 and in the um i remember once <coughs> excuse me seeing an advert i never forget it like a picture of um a girl with like a leather coat on a walkman or something i was i was in my mate's haley's and i just don't know why it's stuck in my brain but it was like this is what a heroin addict will see when they see you and it was something like Walkman, twenty pounds, leather coat, forty pounds, and it was like the grain chill thing with the just say just no. say no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we always <laughs> knew that like it wasn't good, like to be addicted to something. You know, we did the heroin epidemic had hit um, the world massively, hadn't it, in the eighties and everything. But I never thought I'd be the person to get addicted to heroin ever like out my group of school friends there was eight of us there was eight of us in this bed sit who were full-on little party animals and there's two of the three of us ended up on heroin one of them passed away in 2002 i think she went me other friend um i i i don't know what she's up to now but i never thought like i was from a good family um you know, was raised in a really nice area. I wasn't the child. Like, when I went to high school, I didn't even understand what free school meals were. I went to Poulton Lanston Primary School, and I'm not saying that like, oh, you know, like, dead egotistical. It was a no. bloody good school. Yeah. So we didn't have things in our school back then, like free school meals and free milk. Like, my parents worked. We weren't, like, the affluent people who lived in Spittle. My parents are from the Woodchurch Estate. They were grafters. They wanted a better life for yeah. us. So I then had to go into this high school 
and try and understand that people were given free school meals and that they couldn't afford the cookery. And, and, and I got in a circle. I was like one of the popular kids in school. Um, I was the funny, kind one, you know, like I said, the class clown. But I stayed friends with these group of girls who I'm still friends with today, the ones who were left. And um, I never thought I'd, I'd get addicted. But once I tried it, me, f- me first toot, a toot is when you smoke it on the foil. So back in the day, they used to call it chasing the dragon. Right, which, knowing what you know now, it makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, cause you, you, yeah, you're running it on um, up and down on, on foil, or you, you spot it at first when you first start smoking heroin. So like I said, my partner was in a little group of lads, and they were all like from Rock Ferry, and um, they were all criminals, and they all had money. And so I just harassed him, just nagged him for a good few hours. And asked him to give me some, and he did. It was probably just to shut me up. But I never thought, taking that the first time I took it, that like I'd be on it for twenty six years. Never, never. And, and can you remember? Is was it one of those ones like literally the first time you had it? It was like bingo, or did it take a few times? No, for you it, to took, like it took a few times. Yeah, yeah. It took a few times, um, and I remember being sick. I remember having it smoking a bit. Laying back on the bed, I think, and just thinking, wow, like, what is this? And then I remember throwing up because my body must have been rejecting it. Right. Because my body didn't know what was happening. Like, you know, because the, um, you know, the, the, like, the speed, that's a stimulant. So I was used to stuff like that. And then to take this, I'd had, like, downers before I took the gear. So they're, like, depressing. So it, I think it just made me not not feel as much. But it took a few goes for me. So I started doing it about like twice a week. It was like a twice a week thing. Darren was on it every day. He was a full-blown heroin addict. He'd been going to jail since he was 13. Um, so we was like f- fully on it. And so I just just used to like do it twice a week with him or something. And then it progressed like to the next week to like three times a week. Then the next week. And the only way I knew that I was addicted to it, it sounds mad, I remember being in my friend Janet's house because I lived in New Ferry. And so that's where me and all my mates like were from and where we all lived. And I remember going to Janet's house where my school friends still used to go. They had no idea. I hadn't told anybody. Nobody knew. <clears throat> and I remember just not feeling well. It was like I just my body just didn't feel right. I was like aching, sneezing, just just dead restless. And I remember going back to the flats and and one of Darren's friends, when like I went in, he was like, "What's up with you?" And I was like, "I don't know, I don't know." And I just remember him saying, "Darren, your beard's turkey and your beard's turkey," and because that's that's Cl- withdrawals. That yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So you can call it turkey and you know, or rattling or whatever. But we always used to call it turkey, and I was withdrawing. So, so th- th- that's this when is I this is the point where it turns from like uh, having like a, a pleasurable experience to a point where you you. Uh, you, you're getting dependent because you're trying yeah. to push away the sickness of not yeah, actually. Yeah, so having that's it. when you've got to take it. Right. Okay. So I don't know if I was doing it every day at that point, but I, I was about three, four, five times a week. Maybe it only took a few weeks. From what I remember, right. my memory isn't that good yeah, on yeah, some yeah. things, but it wasn't like a six month thing. I think it, it it was a few weeks maybe, and then so obviously they had to give me some gear, and then. I had an issue then because I started. I I I was like everyone was saying to me who knew Darren was on the heroin. Like my school friends didn't approve of him. The lads I on ground with didn't approve of him. Um, 
And everyone was saying, oh, you're going to end up on the gear, you, you know, you're, and I was like, I'm not going to end up a heroin addict. I thought, oh my God, I'd never be, a, I'm not going to be one of them people. And I did. Yeah. I did. So then it was, um, like, just, just needing heroin every day. And that went on for 26 years. 26 years. Yeah. Wow. I detoxed. Um, I, I, I got put on methadone as well. Like, I'll probably jump in the story. So I was 19, basically, realised I was addicted to heroin. Nobody knew, and I, I then got pregnant with my eldest daughter. And then that's when I went out for food with my mum and her husband, uh, uh, my stepdad. And that's when she told me about my dad. And the weirdest thing was, I knew, because I remem- I'll never forget it, I remember her sitting there and saying to me, because she was drunk, Saying to me, I've, Kate, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what? And I said, my dad's not my dad, is he? And she went, yeah, he's not. It's so it's so weird because I'd never questioned it as a child, but I just knew. There was right. like so many things that were said to me. Like at one point, I remember my dad, I, I always call him my dad, saying to me, oh, you were going to be an abortion bucket child, you know, when I was hanging out washing. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, and I stopped it. But that was when him and my mum had divorced and my dad was still in love with her and very bitter. So, but once I knew that, I don't even, looking back now, I don't even know how I processed it. Like thinking, talking about it now, that is massive for a girl of 19 because it was a girl to find out that this man, my dad was my world. I loved my dad more than, and I still do to this day, love him more than I've ever loved anyone apart from my four daughters. So um, at that time when you uh, when you found out that news and you, as you mentioned there, you, that you were using, did that put you on like a, a darker path that like commit you further down to what you were already doing? Uh, how, how did that sort of influence oh God, yeah. what you... Yeah, what you from, from looking back, because I try, I try and think back to how I, how I would have processed it. And from what I say to my friends, some of them say I didn't even tell them. Because at this time, I was still with, like, from what I remember, me school friends. So I was still... They, they weren't on, on the gear like me. Like, they found out eventually. But um, I think, looking back, it was it was processing it. Like, I just... Honestly, I just loved my dad so much. I get emotional now thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had, like, bitterness towards me mum. And it was... Looking back, it was like... I'd, I think I'd lost myself. I didn't know who I was. Right. Because my whole world had been shattered. It was a massive big secret that had been kept in my family. My brother and sister weren't aware. And it was just like, wow. So because I was on, if I wouldn't have been on the gear looking back, I probably would have asked questions. I can't even remember properly if I ever spoke to me, me dad about it. I think I had one conversation with him, but it was heartbreaking to tell you the truth. The, the key thing I think you mentioned there is is identity. Yeah, um, because we obviously when we're in that f- those formative years of growth and development as a teenager going into adulthood, we're looking to establish like who we are and we do it for our friends and our environment and the things we do. And then, of course, like when you have your parents there, like that's that's where you're getting all of your uh, source of identity from. So when that's when that's uh, changed in such a massive way, you've, you've got any foothold you already had is, is gone. So yeah. then that's going to put you on another uh, trajectory in terms of like, right, what am I going to, what, what am I going to look for to fill the gaps that have, that have been taken away from, uh, from, from, uh, 
lack of uh, parenting uh, identity. So, um, so with that, as you go into, you've mentioned there about the the twenty twenty six years. Um, so you found all of these things out. You're mm-hmm. in a situation where you're using, and now you've got uh, a large chunk of your life where you've committed uh, to, well, not committed, but you're in the grips of addiction. How did that pan out? You mentioned there about uh, detoxing. Was there a was there a period of time where you were were coming off or trying to get away, or were, were there rehab, or were you just fully in it for for that period of time? What did that look like for you? Because obviously you've got a lot of uh, typical stories of uh, you know crime and um, all the other pitfalls that come comes with drug usage and and supplying the the finances to do it. How did that pan out for you in that in that period of time? Well, what happened was being a heroin addict costs a hell of a lot of money. Right. I know it sounds mad. Well, it doesn't sound mad, but <coughs> when I try and explain it, because of who my partner was, because he was there was three brothers, so he was from um, a family. They were we used to call it grafters, so they used to do things overnight, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't uh, someone. I think when I was on the gear, I think. We used to get £30 bags at one point. So I wasn't a person who just smoked one £30 bag a day. It was just continuous. However much money you had, you spent. So, you know, the, the, when I got into addiction, it was about, you know, my partners would make, because I had a first partner in addiction and then a second one, it, it'd make, he wouldn't be happy if the, like, 500 to like a grand a night they used to make wow. on some nights so it was a lot of money it was a lot of money um and i presume that was from dealing dealing it and you No, he was he was a grafter so right, he, okay. he, he, used, he used to rob pubs and that right okay back yeah. in the day you, you could do things like that he always went to jail for it like yeah. they end up going to jail after you get a good run so i was on the gear i was 19 i was pregnant with my eldest daughter and he then went to jail when i was three months pregnant so darren was born june 93 so that was december 92 and then i had to fend for myself which was a bit when you're used to you have it being provided i wasn't really used to turkey and that much um so me and my friend <coughs> wendy she's the my lovely friend who passed away, she was with Darren's brother. Right. So we were like best friends, going out with two brothers, and we were both pregnant. She was two months ahead of me. So we were just um, trying to get by while we were both carrying the, these babies. Um, and we were just... Wendy worked, so she was, like, getting overdrafts and everything, and, and you know, we had to start shoplifting, things like that. And then my daughter was born, and Darren... I think he was looking at a two and a half, two and a half year sentence, but because he'd served six months on remand, from what I remember, and they have to get like a report done when they go to court. So because I was pregnant and he was saying he'd had such a bad life and oh, he's going to have a new start. He just did his remand and when he went to court, I think they gave him, I think they'd put him on probation or something. That's what they do. So Darren got out. I had my eldest daughter, Darren. I was actually, I'd been withdrawing for two days, it was. I hadn't had no gear for two days. The hospital didn't know I was a heroin addict because I wasn't on a script, so I wasn't on methadone at that point. So when I had DD, that's my eldest daughter, Dad, and I'd, I'd just turned 20 in the April, and I remember um, I, I got brought gear up to the hospital 
by my mate, obviously, because I was I was taking, but it gave me um, diamorphine anyway when I was in labour. Right. So that had sort of sorted me out um, from what I remember. And then Darren got out when she was two weeks old and the cycle just continued from there. So right. I got put on, I went to get help when he went away again. Because he was always away, he was always going to jail, so he'd be out for about 12 uh, twelve months, maybe six months, but because he was robbing the pubs, you'd only used to get. You used to stay in the magistrates' court, so he only ever used to get. The Smaller match can sentence. only give you up to twelve months, so we just used to get twelve months to do six. So I'd have to go out shoplifting in there, and then obviously when Dad and come home, he took over. But it was bloody hard, so I got myself scripted on the methadone. I think it was about 94. I had to go to my doctor and tell my doctor like I was addicted to heroin. And then um, I used to have to go to the doctors every week, I think, and then they referred me to the lodge, which is what I used to call it back then. It's it's the drug service. So I got put on a methadone script, and I think they put me on... They started off, I think they put me on 30 mil. They work it out with how many grams you're smoking. So I think I was on... Because Darren wasn't there to, like be on hundreds of pounds i know i was on at least 60 pounds worth of gear a day because the, or 60 or 90 i think it was because they have to work it out by how much you're smoking and then i ended up on 60 millimethadone for 2014 i did me first me, me, me methadone detox so my life was just waking up of a morning um if i had me meth if i hadn't sold to drink a bit of meth and then you go out and Shoplift, commit crime, checkbooks, whatever, I did it all to to get the gear. If you didn't have it, but my life was quite lucky because I was always with people who could make money and I could make I was capable of making money myself. So that was that was what happened. Wow. Sounds mad talking about it like this. I'm used to because I'm in fellowship, I'm used to talking in rooms, but uh, I've n- never gone into detail like this. Like when we do a share, it's like 15, 20 minutes. So no, I, I really appreciate it because, um, uh, as, as I mentioned before, like I love, uh, I love people's testimonies. I love a good story, uh, as well. And um, I think the the beauty about going into more detail of this is how it creates uh, not only a foundation for the redemption of of the faith and what Yeshua and Jesus does for us to to alleviate from that, but. It also uh, it can be such a, a witness to those who are currently in that situation or are still picking up the pieces from uh, addiction in its varying forms, and it's a it's a real uh, a real presentation, a real uh, description of of what life can be like um, without having uh, faith and 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 quite how far it is we can go down the road b- b- before we're pulled out from it. So, um, with that being said, I think that would be a good segue into. If we if we then can start talking about, you know, I, I think it's beautiful. You, you said at the beginning about uh, even as a child, this is something I, I loved. God, yeah, yeah, it was it was always there. And I I I, I remember I used to go and, and sit in churches uh, on my own as a young kid, like looking at the stained glass windows, going, "What is this all about?" You know. Um, but then, latterly coming to the faith and accepting Christ. I was then able to look back and see all of the seeds and all of the things that were actually there, that, that God all, was always there. So with that being said, you, you, you knew that there was something from early doors and now you're in this situation where you're in the grips of addiction. <coughs> you've got this this life uh, that was horrendous, horrendous and, and destruction and all of the pitfalls that come with it. Um, just talk to us about the, 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 the period of time in which God 
starts coming into your life and 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 what that looked like because this this may not necessarily look like a a reg a, you know a a black and white situation where it's like oh here's jesus and now everything's cool no, it's, it's like there's a like there's that. a period so if you just talk me through that period of time in your life where the, the his hand is is sli- starting to pull you i remember away exactly from when it was yeah yeah so but it's like so i was you I, I got on crack as well in 1998 i remember the year i'm quite good at my ears with the the adhd memory but um 2012 it was 2012 was when I'm sure the Paralympics was on. It was Paralympics or some madness. And I was with my second partner at this time, who's the father of me three other daughters. And I remember I was just not in a good place physically, um, obviously mentally. I was spiritually broken. And I think I'd been given a Bible off someone or for some reason, I was praying like I hadn't prayed before. Normally, I'd be sitting there me of a morning saying, oh, God, I'm taking, or, oh, God, please let the dealer come. Please let him come, you know, because sometimes you've got to wait to score. Back then, you'd phone someone, and you'd, you could be waiting like 15 minutes to like two hours for someone's come and drop gear off. That was the only time I prayed, or if I got nicked was the only time I prayed, or if I wanted to make sure me fella come home. I used to always pray, God, please bring him home, please bring him home, you know, with money. But this was something different inside of me. This was like, please help me. I just remember, like, please help me, because I'd lost me dad. So my dad had died in 2009. He had stomach cancer. And I hadn't been told he was in hospital. He drove himself to hospital on January the 1st. That's why I don't like, I mean, I don't celebrate Christmas really anyway, but I don't like it. He drove himself into hospital on the 1st of Jan 2009 and I got a call the day that he died to say he was in hospital and he had two weeks left to live. Wow. So I, I remember praying then. I remember asking God to help him and then being really angry when he passed away. Really angry. Like, he was 68 and he was me world. Whether he was my biological father or not, that didn't matter to me. And I remember just saying, why Why have you took me dad? I remember I used to talk to him every night, God being like angry, why have you took me dad? Why didn't you take me? You know, you should have took me. Like I'm a, I'm a heroin addict, I'm on methadone, I'm on crack, I take tablets, I drink, I'm, you know, like a bad person. And and then I think I was just angry with God for quite a while. And then in 2012, it was something to do with the Olympics. I remember being in my bedroom, watching the tally. I wasn't getting on with my kid's dad at the time. Um, and having these little three daughters and, and my eldest daughter, she didn't live with us then, and just needing a way out. And it took him quite a while, you know. It took God quite a while, to, or, or took me quite a while, sorry, to surrender to him. And um, I did my first detox in 2014. That was my first one, which was my alcohol detox because I was drinking as well. Right. Mm. And uh, at this point, so you've obviously got some form of dialogue relationship going on with with God, uh, albeit you know a fractured one. But there's there's hope. There's something that you're leaning on or, or leaning towards in times of difficulty. Um, and w- was there any sort of like when you were going through detoxes or coming off stuff? Did did you have an idea that this was God's? working you or were you just trying to yeah. get through it yeah all all the detox i've done like three detoxes in the detox center and i was had to do a mad one at home which i'll talk about in a bit but 
every morning I asked him for help. Yeah. And that's why I know that I'm clean, because I, I surrendered to him. So every morning when I did my first detox, I'd, I'd be asking him, like, get me through today, get me through today. Because doing a detox, it's it's physically hard. Right. And I've done all the detoxes. I've done alcohol. I've done methadone. I've done heroin when they put you on buprenorphine. I've done diazepam detox. I've done alcohol detox in the house. I've done what they class as a bareback rattle where I had to stay in the house and the drug service gave me a comfort pack. So detoxing, it's... I've got to watch it, don't swear, because my language is <laughs> terrible. It's really... It's so hard on your body. It is especially heroin. This, yeah, I was so going to ask, like, what, what was the hardest? Because I've heard that alcohol and... and it like can be life endangering. Kind oh, of alcohol it. is life endangering. Yeah. Alcohol, you can seizure. I used to have seizures as well, mate. Right. But it was never off alcohol. I believe it's. Um, I'm waiting on a neurology appointment because I had one last year as well. Um, there's like a little imbalance in my brain, but mine was crack related. I used to smoke that much crack. Right. When you smoke the crack, that's an upper, and then you smoke the gear to bring you down. But because of me lifestyle and. The money that we had, I, I'd like binge for like about three days, not sleep. And something must have gone on. My brain needed shutting down. So yeah. I used to, I've, oh, I've had loads of them, loads of them. And you're saying like heroin was the hardest, would you say? Heroin, well, the hardest. No, methadone. Right. Methadone, oh, okay. A methadone detox is the hardest detox in my experience that you can ever do. Coming off the gear ain't that bad. Like if you're just, if you're just on the heroin, and you've just got to do what we call a rattle or a turkey. It can probably be maybe three days to a week where you're going to feel like... But then you'll get over. But the methadone is on another level. The methadone is like... you just It's just absolutely horrendous. Your body just doesn't want to do anything. So, like, y- your legs are so restless. You get a point where you get heavy legs, where you feel like you've got to hold them to walk. Y- your legs just move all over the show. You're constantly yawning. You know when someone's in withdrawals off um, heroin or methadone, buprenorphine, any opiates, because your eyes, one of the first signs is, because everybody can't see what it's like inside our bodies, obviously, when we're in withdrawals, but your eyes are water, you're constantly yawning. So you'll be yawning, your eyes are streaming, your eyes are, like, streaming, you get, like, your stomach goes, you can't sleep, you get hot and cold sweats, um, your body just aches, it's just... A methadone detox is absolutely ruthless. Listen, I've had four kids. I've had four daughters. And while that is like an experience and a half to, to go through labour, it's over and done with. The methadone detox, you never know when it's ending. Wow. It's it's Honestly, it's horrible. It's, um, <coughs> it's interesting because you've, you've got like uh, an element of um, the man-made uh, substitute. Oh, shaking again. You're right. Yeah. It's just this tremor that I have, which is through substance misuse. So I've got something called a benign essential tremor. So it involuntary shakes. Okay, I I, I couldn't I couldn't oh, notice okay. to be honest. I don't but like one have shaky. I no, no, like you're you're absolutely fine. Bless you. I can no. feel it coming on. Yeah. No, Come it's on. it's absolutely fine. If you want to take a break, then then just give me the nod. But I I couldn't notice. So okay. you you're absolutely fine. Um, yeah, the uh, the the man-made element to the replacement. It's like um. You see the, is it the fentanyl epidemic that's taking place in America where it's replacing heroin? That's bad, that. And it's it's like far more, uh, so all of the elements to it are far more dangerous and far more critical than, than the original uh, product was because they've replaced 
uh, heroin with what was originally for terminal patients. Uh, to, I think so. And now it's actually just replaced. Uh, so all of the uh, the kickbacks from it are that much harder and more severe than than the original uh, product was. Okay, so so with that being said, um, I want to kind of fast forward into um, the time in which you you were you came clean and and you were finally done with the detoxes uh you've 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 come out of the other side and god's like come into your life and you and, and you you're knowing salvation what what did that look like for you because we, we we shared an interesting conversation before we started about uh when you came to uh the way fellowship and you were still using yeah but god, you were coming yeah. to fellowship so just um just give us a little bit of an insight about that i started praying in 2012 I'm not going to lie, because I don't lie and say every day I was praying. I wasn't. I just knew there was something in me that was really... I'd never wanted to get clean seat before then. Loads of people I knew. Well, not that many, actually, where I put... There was a couple of people, like, you'd gone to rehab. Oh, they detox. That that wasn't me. I thought, oh, life without drugs going to be so boring. Can't do it. But when I did that alcohol detox, um, I was all, like, made up, like... um. Because I was asking God for help continuously. I had that sleep paralysis. That's what kicked it off. I right. didn't understand what it was. So yeah, I was. I was. It was a few years later when I asked the way. Yeah. So it was 2014, and I'd bloated. I was drinking Skull Super. So um, we'd moved. Me, me partner had, had been away for like a few years, and then he'd got out, and we split up, and we lived on the Overchurch at the point, and I moved back to Rock Ferry with my three daughters. And I was drinking like six to eight cans of Skull Super a day. So it's like nine and a half percent. We used to call it smack in a can. Wow. So at the time, me fellow wasn't grafting. Like he was saying, I'm not going back to jail. This is me second partner, Wayne, who's died from the disease of addiction. He passed away um, in 2017. But So we were like drinking um, six to eight cans of Skull a day. We were sort of like still together, but, but not. And... Um, I was on the methadone. I think I hadn't used gear. I wasn't, like, using heroin every day. I'd been, at one point, I was, like, just using once a week because the drink was just so bad. It was ruthless. And um, I remember one night lying in bed because I didn't understand what sleep paralysis was. I had no idea. And I remember I was praying, asking God all the time for help. I had a little Bible, and I was always saying, help me, help me. And it all started me wanting to detox because I remember being in bed one night, as wacky as this sounds. I go. And uh, Wayne was downstairs on the couch and I was in my bedroom and I just remember there was like an immense pressure on me, an immense pressure. And I was, I remember being asleep. I don't know, it sounds weird to explain. And then opening my eyes and there was just darkness. And I remember trying to shout, Wayne. Wayne, you know, because the fear in me was, I've only experienced that once. The fear in me was so overwhelming. It was like I was frozen and I was trying to shout the kid's dad like he was downstairs. I was trying to, and it wouldn't come out. Nothing would come out and I was squashed down. It was, oh, and I can't remember how long it lasted for, but I was like, oh my God, what's happened there? And I was like a size 16 in weight. So on the heroin, I was always like a size eight. I was really underweight because the heroin, it just ravages you in the crack. But the, the skull had bloated me because it's sugar. So I was like a big thing. Everyone was going, oh, you look really well, you know, because they knew I wasn't sort of smoking gear anymore. And I was like, no, I'm not really well. And um, something in me then made me 
go and ask for a detox. So I was at the drug service because I'd been with them for years. And um, that's when I did my first detox and when I started believing that God was trying to help me. Well, this is how I see it. God's had my back since I was born. Right. I, I understand massively now with me connection with him. I was using with all four of my daughters. Not one of them withdrew. Wow. I was on methadone with three of them. Not one of them withdrew. And I believe that God has, has had me, had my back, should I say, since I was a child. Like I always had a thing for crosses. I know that sounds mad. I always had a, had, had a belief that there was something there. I was just too obsessed. The um, obsession to use and the disease of addiction was just too overwhelming for me. But I just I just knew it was done. So after that sleep paralysis thing, I think that's when I found the way, the, the way the fellowship. fellowship yeah. I think because I remember John Paul explaining to me what it was. So for quite a few years, I came into the... The, the way that we live, like the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was... And that, I believe, was God. I don't believe God wanted me in a church um, that, should I say, wasn't hardcore. Right. I was taught, I believe God wanted me to know his way. He wanted me to be able to read the Bible. Right. He wanted me to understand. I've read the whole of the Bible. Like, everybody who knows me knows I love God. Like... It's I think that's a legit shout. I think the, the, the majority, well, I'm generalizing, but a lot of people who come to the Torah path are quite often the, those that have had like the hardest experiences yeah. in life because they are hardcore. Yeah, like they've, yeah. they've been to the extremities. So the, 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 uh, the way in which, uh, that, that appetite for whatever that fulfillment is, is then transferred into biblical truth. And then yeah. that's why I, I can look around and, and be in these in these fellowships and go, I'm in the right company because these people are, are hungry for the truth. They're, 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 they need the fulfillment of what God truly provides. Mm. Um, so with that, like you mentioned there about, um, you know, how important it was to have that, um, that strong foundation <coughs> of the fullness of of. Of, of the, of the word, yeah. Do, do you think that makes a, a big difference? Because there's this element of uh, they talk about deliverance and um, you know being free from your demons. You know, you're baptized, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Hallelujah!" How important do you find, or did you find in that time, um, that uh, the, the the obedience to God's word and and and, and the, the light that came from that? How much of a role did that play in you, like maintaining? Or coming away and then maintaining a different lifestyle? It, I didn't for the first few years. I didn't. I used to go to... Um, I didn't maintain no lifestyle. <laughs> I, I was going to the way. They'll all remember me using. So yeah. I used to sit in there monging. So that's monging is when we're like this. That's exactly what you do. So because I was on the gear and the methadone and I was taking tablets, so um, diazepam. So I'm so subdued that, like, you can fall asleep like that if you've had enough in you, which is the most, I know it sounds terrible, the greatest feeling in the world because the world just stops. Right. So I used to go there, Mong, and so what had actually happened was the old pastor, the pastor from the way used to live at the bottom of my road. This is how weird God works, right? So he'd moved me from the overchurch, which was an estate where every single block there was like uh, about six blocks of flats in where i lived there was three of us in a block of flat of eight who were heroin addicts every block had heroin addicts in there i was from Tramia, rock Valley Tramia. i was the person who used to score for everyone 
was used to getting me house bust. My fella was always going to jail. I was very, very chaotic, very chaotic. I sold drugs as well for other people. And then I moved up this estate for years, out my element, having to get people to score for me, like, oh, whatever. Anyway, and then I moved back to Rock Ferry. And I moved back to Rock Ferry, and in my road, it's just how weird that it works, like piecing it together now. John Paul lived at the bottom of my road. And I didn't even know. I didn't know. I hadn't been to church since I was a child. I was just asking God for help all the time. Just, you know, I was, oh, God. It was horrible, Dad, because I just used to cry all the time. I was not a nice person. And um, I know today that he's made me, like, the loving woman that I'm meant to be. So, anyway, so what happened was I was always on my arse, which basically means I never had no money, obviously, because mm-hmm. I'm a drug addict, so I've never got no money. Managing to get the smallest amount of food that I can for my kids. Obviously, I've got to try and function with three little girls who are the most, you know, my four daughters are the biggest gift God's ever given me, apart from me recovery. And one day I was talking to a lad who lived with John Paul at the bottom of my road. I think it was Mike. Right. He used to love my girls, like, because we used to have a staff dog. And uh, the girls and me were always with our Cleo when Wayne didn't have her. That was me partner who passed and I was just talking to him and I said something about God. And he said, wow, he said, my roommate is in like a fellowship. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? He said, he's like a pastor. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, okay. And obviously, um, I was back on the gear at this point as well, I think. So obviously, he then must have spoke to him about me, must have mentioned me to John Paul. And I think I'd have done my alcohol detox. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd done both my detoxes. I'd gone, I'd done an alcohol detox in 2014, gone back three months later and did my methadone detox, but then I relapsed. So I was clean for about six weeks, probably knowing me, if that. And then I was back on the gear because I couldn't stay clean. And they put John Paul in my path. God put JP in my path. So from what I remember, I think John Paul knocked at my house. Um, Mike had. had they came with money for me over Christmas. I think that was 214 or 215. They'd put money through me door. And I was telling you before downstairs, obviously I used some of it to score because my girls got it and there was a Bible. Oh, that was my first Bible that they gave me. I already had one because I got free. And they'd pushed a Bible through the door. I think I'd... I, actually, no, I don't even think I'd met... No, I hadn't even met John Paul at this point. I just remember a Bible being through my door just before Christmas, and there was a hundred and something pounds in it. And I, I, I didn't let my kids see how much money, because that's how crafty we are mm-hmm. when we're on drugs, because I, um, I was off the methadone at this point, so it must have been after my meth detox. So that was even worse, in a way, after all the pain. It's about 12 weeks for a meth detox, so that's how long you sort of not sleep in like normal people sleep for. And um, I remember keeping some money to score because I had nothing for the girls and then going to buy them, you know, like cheap Christmas presents and that. The dad was alive at the time, so he was getting them presents. He was actually working. He was just on the drink then. And then I wanted to know who it was from and it had just said um, from the way or, or something. Anyway, I got to meet John Paul and then they started taking me up to the way up in Town Lane. And that's where I met Angie and Joe and Becca and Mel and all the others. And I just couldn't believe how kind these people were. Like, I was a heroin addict. Like, nobody had time for me. The only 
Like, my dad was dead. My mum was still really good with me, but I'd only go and see her, like, once a week. Obviously, all we got money from her, so that was my point of going to see her because with the disease of addiction and the obsessions, it's ways and means to get more all the time. So your head's constantly twirling, constantly, constantly, more, 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 more. And I, I was on the heroin and the crack, and um, I got accepted by these people. And I believe God did that. God, I mean, I, like I keep saying, I said it before, how weird is it to move out of all, you know, there's not a pastor who lives in every road, is there? Right. That That's like a given, that's factual information. Yeah. And the road that I'm moved to, a pastor lives, right, I lived here in 55. JP lived at the bottom. And John Paul and Charlie were just dead kind to me. They used to pick me up. I didn't understand. I didn't have a, a, a clue about anything. And that's where I think God wanted me. He didn't. I've been to, since I've been in recovery, I was coming, obviously, to the Almond House for a good part of my recovery when I got clean. And then, obviously, I got contact with my children of a Saturday. Things had to change. But I um, can't even remember what the point was. See, the way my brain's just gone. No, 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 it's fine. But so, yeah, so, so what happened was, sorry, yeah, so at one point in my recovery, I, I told, like, Joe and them, I went to a Christian church of a Sunday and I think I went all of two times, three times. Something told me to get out. Didn't like it. Did not like it. I was used to a good few years of studying the Bible, of Bible study. So I was used to coming in, not understanding anything and doing like, you know, the way we do the Torah sections. Yeah. Doing like the section to the Bible, having like a PowerPoint put up, being with kind people. And doing what I believe is God's work, which is teaching us the Bible instead of like this other church you went to, and it's no disrespect to anybody, anybody's beliefs at all, whatever they believe. But to go from being hardcore Hebrew, studying, knowing what's right, what's wrong, a fellowship to go to somewhere where uh, I think there was two lines up about locusts, they'd picked some parts out of the Bible about locusts, and then loads of singing, passing the basket round for money. Right. Pressure, 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 pressure. Um, it didn't sit right with me. And I knew the inside of me, which was God saying to me, get out of Dodge, and this isn't for you, Kate. So that's why I believe he put me down the Torah path. Which is, uh, yeah, as, as I said, it's a beautiful... Um, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to have, uh, like... I refer to it, or we sometimes refer to it as the aftercare package of like we need the fullness of what it means to be like in covenant with God, yeah. and to to see that played out uh, throughout the fullness of the scripture, and that gives uh, such uh, a solid foundation to be able to, um, yeah, come away from from certain things in our life. Um, uh, Joe mentioned there, there was a, a, a visit that you had here where they prayed for you in the in the garden. Was oh, that yes, a? yeah. So what happened was, my girls used to come with me as well, you know, of a Saturday morning. They used to come with me to the way, my daughters. Um, and then when I um, came to the Almond House, um, I was, I'd, I'd done detoxes the year before in the house where I'd had to come off. My kids were getting took into care, basically. It got stopped as well. By the judge. See, it was always weird. I took JP with me once as well to one of my social services meetings I used to have. Um, my lack reviews, honestly. I took John Paul. My kids were going. I'd, my kids had been on the register since Callie was born in 2004. 
So my kids should have been removed from me an awful long time ago and they weren't. And I believe that was God keeping them with me till he knew it was time for them to go to me to get on with me recovery. Right. So this one time, got to sound like air from band camp this one time. <laughs> so so um, I was with Joe and them then and they all knew I was using. They were dead kind with me. God, they used to feed me. They used to bring me foods. You know, they'd buy me gas. They'd buy me lucky. They were so accepting of somebody coming to the house who was who was on drugs and they all knew mm-hmm. they all knew and I wasn't used to it like I was used to hang around with people who were on the gear all my life it didn't happen so much when I moved to Rock Valley but it used to get like smackhead sheltered to you in the street so the stigma this shame caused me family I was not used to being with people who didn't use drugs my friends all used drugs that was my circle end of didn't hang around with straight heads as we used to call people and then I came into this fellowship and I'd turn up one week, maybe I wouldn't come the next, they'd come and get me. And when they when they were here, where we are now, um, I was desperate. I was trying so hard because I'd I'd tried um the year before and Wayne had passed at this point, so my partner had died. So me kids had gone into care in January January two thousand seventeen. And I was flat out using. Wayne had passed away on the 6th of July 2017. And he was an addict like me. He was only 45. So I lost him. The drink took him, believe it or not. Not the heroin, the drink. Um, he had cirrhosis of the liver. So he was his body was shutting down for a good few years. And then um, I was on my own in the house. So I was able to come every Saturday. And then what had happened was I'd, I'd been down to our local drug service. I think I was with them at the time or not. I'd been off my methadone script and then like I was just using. But then I'd gone back a few times to um, for them to try me with the buprenorphine, which is the, the sort of like the methadone, but it's a tablet that you take, stops you withdrawing. And um, I'd been down there like on two occasions because I knew I just thought I was going to die. I was desperate for help. It was the lowest point of me using. I was, Wayne was dead. I was on my own in this flat. My kids were in care. I was just having, letting dealers come in my house, obviously getting like whatever I was getting for that. Um, I was so chaotic. I was doing anything I could for money. And because I didn't have my kids, my using was even worse and my soul had gone and I was seeing bad things in the house. And I'm not getting you on this one. There was energies in that house that I hadn't experienced. That house, there was something weird. That's where I'd had the sleep paralysis. And I remember, sorry, I know I'm, I'm, I'll get to the point now. No, no, about, no, you're right. But I remember on three occasions being woken up in bed by something. And I remember I'd see dark figures. And I remember crying and telling JP at the time. And he told me to get rid of me witches, werewolf, vampire books I used to have in the house. And it just didn't feel right. So it was like my soul had... My soul wasn't right. My little soul, I, I understand, sort of, my spirit's soul, whatever people want to call it. It's like um, getting into addiction. It's like you sign a contract with the devil, but you don't. So you're in the darkness all the time. It's dark. Your world's dark. Your mind's dark. And you just do bad things. And so I was coming up here, and I'd gone down to the drug service to get assessed because I mustn't have been with them at this point. I can't remember. To... to to tell them that I needed help because they help you, they're really good, they'll help you. And I wasn't on any prescription, I don't think. 
And then I'd gone down one week. There was no one there to assess me. Obviously, I'm an addict, so I ain't waiting around in no drug service for an hour for someone to come out and assess me. The key workers are always busy. So I'd obviously come home, scored, whatever. And I'd gone down the following week or two weeks later to get assessed. The same thing happens. And I came up here and I mentioned it to Joe. And then next thing you know, it was in the summer. 2018 it was, yeah, that's when I got clean. And they prayed on me in the back. Joe always wanted to help me and Angie and Becca and all the rest of them, Tommy, all of them. And they prayed on me, you know, like the way we have the little uh, tab. The hooper thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all put hands on me and prayed on me on the Saturday. And I went to the drug service on the Monday, got myself down there because I knew I was done. I, I, I needed, I couldn't detox in the house. I'd done it the year before and ended up using. I'd done, um, when I was with the Almond House, I'd, I'd told them I wanted to get clean and I took loads of DFs to come off the heroin. I was drinking at the same time. I ended up using like a week later. So I knew I needed professional help with the detox centre. And they prayed on me and I went and um, one of the key workers managed to assess me that the Monday when I went down and then they got me in the detox centre the following week, I think it was. And I knew, I knew because like when someone puts hands on you and prays on you, it's very powerful. Yeah. And don't forget, I had mind-altering substances in me, so I'm not how I am now, like a mind-altering substance. All the substances I was taking, it alters your mind and alters how you think. But I just knew that God had me back. I really did. I really did. And I've felt that ever since I've got clean. Love that, Frasier. Um, so with that, let's um, let's bring it up to to present day and and how this has led you to the work that you do today and and um, you know your experiences and your journey of faith, how that's all come together and what that looks like for you today. Oh, my life's totally different today. The best thing about my life today is I don't withdraw of a morning. It's it's a blessing that. If you haven't been in addiction, you don't understand. So what happened was, after he prayed on me, I went and got assessed by the um, our local drug service, which is CGR, Whittle Ways to Recovery in Birkenhead. Um, Hannah, who assessed me, she then takes it to the funding office or whatever, and they got me into Birchwood, which is the detox centre. We were known as, I actually work there now, we were known as Birchwood Residential Treatment Centre on Balls Road, so it's where you go into detox off opiates and alcohol, and I'd been in there twice before, that's where I did my alcohol and methadone one in 2014. So they got me in there really quick because I've got COPD, so the drug service discovered I had COPD through doing my oxygen levels, and the, the doctor who I had to see before I went in, oh, honest to God, Dad, and I think I was about, I think I was seven stone when I went in, I mean I'm five foot seven, like, I'm 11 stone now, yeah. 11, I'm, I'm a healthy build now, how I'm meant to be. And this doctor just knew, because I just remember I couldn't breathe properly. Um, like, when I was withdrawn of a morning waiting for the dealer, I'd physically have to, like, a child up the stairs, so I couldn't walk upstairs when I was withdrawn. I'd have to put my hands on the stairs to go up, being sick all the time and withdrawn. It's like, you're, you're at the toilet all the time from both ends. And anyway... Um, they got, they got me in this detox centre and um, I did, um, they put me on the buprenorphine for, for two weeks. So I did, I think I did, I was in there for two weeks. So I must have done 10 days on the medication. They reduce you slowly. And um, I got then three, three clean days in there. Yeah, I was in there for two weeks, Monday to Monday and then Monday to Monday. And every morning when I'd wake up, I'd pray. 
because I was really into God at this time. I'd obviously I'd been with with you guys. I'd been with a Hebrew fellowship for four years on and off. So it was four years of me continuously trying of going to um, Bible study one Saturday, maybe not going two Saturdays after, then maybe going three Saturdays after. And I knew that that if I could get through the detox, that um, God would get me through it. And he did, and he used to wake up every morning. And as soon as I'd get out of bed in that detox centre, I'd, I'd had hardly any sleep. I might have been lucky. I think I got two two nights sleep I got in Birchwood and doing that buprenorphine detox. Um praying, asking him to get me through the day, to give me the strength to get me through the day. And then I'd, I'd pray overnight, like proper on my hands and knees, humbling myself, thanking him for the day. And when I got to sleep, it was weird. Another weird point's only just come in my brain. The, the, we have different nurses, because obviously I work there now, so they have their own nurses and we have bank nurses. And there was a lady who worked there, a nurse, and I was in with my friend, um, Michelle. Hello, Michelle, if you're watching this, she'll probably watch it. So me and my mate, Shell, were the only females in there doing it opiate detox and we were both into god both of us we had like this connection because we both knew god was gonna was was gonna save us and um one of the nurses prayed she prayed with us both we asked her to come in she came in the living room and you know what i was actually watching um the way on youtube that's right we were sitting there and she was showing me like her stuff and then i was showing her like the tour and, and what we do and this nurse prayed for us. She told me to ask for peace of mind. The nurse was saying, what are you praying for? And I was saying something. She said, asking for peace of mind. That was the night I got sleep. Mm-hmm. Two nights sleep, and I remember that. So what happened was then, I left the detox centre. Joe actually picked me up. Thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> Joe, Joe came and got me. Um, I was trying. Um, you know, I stayed in touch with them. Um, Joe come and got me. He He took me. He took me straight down to the drug service, CGL Whittleways to Recovery, where I got put on groups, and then I attended the fellowship that I'm in, which is um, Narcotics Anonymous. I'm, I'm part of that. I work a 12-step spiritual program. And then I started coming back here every Saturday clean. So, like, I was still a bit feeling a bit rough, you know, because an opiate user, you still will feel a bit rough. Like, right. your body's got to get back to normal. And um, that's basically what happened. Oh, and what and what, what do you do for a job now? I'm a detox practitioner in the <laughs> detox centre, so that's what God's done for me. So the detox centre where I did alcohol detox, a methadone detox, and then a buprenorphine detox. I now work there, and I'm yeah, weird, it, isn't it? it? No, it's it's incredible how uh, God takes um, all of these uh, experiences and weaknesses and deficits, and he and he turns it upside down and and uses it, and that's. One of the beautiful elements to your story is that when we're called to the faith and, um, you know, people talk about ministry and, and doing all of these different things, whether it's teaching, evangelizing, and he puts us all in specific places to reach a, yeah. a specific category of, of people. And um, I just think it's an amazing uh, redemption story of how um, you're now doing the work in that environment. You're yeah. You you mentioned before about being the light in that environment. Oh yeah, I believe I am. I've been told that, and that's not my ego. No, and I, so I believe a lot of clients have told me that. Yeah, and I'm so how how do you think? I mean, obviously, I, I'm sure it's massive, but how how much does your? Because I can imagine in that environment, it is it, 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 there's so much servitude and a lot of sacrifice in terms of 
what you're putting into people in terms of support. How important is, is your faith and your relationship with God in terms of being able to empty yourself in this environment so that you can do the work that you're, that you're called to do? It's massive. And, and put it this way, the people that I work with, and hello, Bertrand, if you're watching, um, they don't have a faith like I've got. Mm. Um, so I have lots of God discussions in the staff room. You know, because we have, there's a few of us who, who are in recovery who work there. That's what most recovering addicts do. A lot of us go back. It's called, because I started volunteering at Birchwood, you see. So I prayed for that as well, and I got that. So I had to wait till I was six months abstinence, which obviously, which means having no mind-altering substances in you to go back and volunteer. So my job, if you want the truth, it's physically exhausting because I work 12 and a half hour shifts. Mm. And it's mentally draining because you're watching people detox. And what I say to everyone is, um, obviously I pray before I go into work. I hand me will and me life over. Um, I'm not perfect by any means. Right. So, you know, but um, I try I try my hardest in there. And um, I, I always say to everyone, that was my journey, what God wanted me on. That was 100%, I feel it, within every ounce of me little soul, what I believe that he wanted for me was, while a lot of addicts, because obviously I'm, I'm in recovery, so me friends are recovering addicts, so while we all have our different journeys, my journey has been, I always explain to people, like, he, he let me get clean, yeah, so for six months I was doing my groups down at CGL, like, they're the really good, the groups that they do of a day, I was in fellowship of a night, I was coming here of a Saturday, I was, like, seeing me kids. I had, like, a little routine. And then I got to, like, six months clean, and I started volunteering. I started in Birchwood in February 2019, so I think I was seven seven months clean or something. So I think what God wanted is, because in fellowship we have to do step work. We work a 12-step program, so we have to write about ourselves all the time. But in our step one, it shows you about, like, um, the times when you've, pick drugs up, drugs up when, you know, like when you've tried to get clean before. So the obsession had gone. I was dead lucky when I come into recovery because I prayed that hard in that detox centre for them two weeks. And don't forget, Dad, and I was 45. So the more detoxes you do, it take, I believe it takes it out of you. So I wasn't like someone detoxing who's like 25. Right. Or, or, or in the 30s. I was 45, like absolutely broken underweight, not eating, like COPD, my body just not well. And I believe that my journey, God wanted me to go and see what would happen if I, I picked back up again. And that's why I believe me, he put me in Birchwood massively. Because mm. I honestly, I prayed for that. I, I prayed, Father, please, you know, please, will, will, you, will you let me go to Birchwood? Will you let me help people? And I volunteered for a year. Wow. And then I got took on his bank which means I got like a shift a week, two shifts a week, because um, I was on my benefits. So you can only work um, so many hours. And then my manager actually asked me to go full-time in um, March 2021. So I think what God's done for me is he thought, right, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you this, and you're going in there to do shift work, and you're going to have a daily reminder watching people withdraw off alcohol, deal with seizures. I dealt with a seizure on Friday. Right. We're only on Sunday. That was quite traumatic. It's traumatic for the clients. It's it's hard on the staff. We do have nurses, so we're really lucky in that sense. Really lucky. It's a very good detox centre where it works. Got a very good reputation. 
But I think he wants me to go in back there and, and watch the opiate users withdraw, the people who are coming off the methadone, off the buprenorphine, the alcohol. He wants me to see, right, you've done all that. So you've been through that pain. You can identify with them. You can understand where they're coming from. You can give them your gift, which is basically just constant reassurance, listening to them, telling them that they'll get through it. That's why we work there in recovery, to show that, that you can recover. And he wanted me to say, I believe this is what's going to happen to you if you pick up again. Wow, powerful. Because when I pick up, I don't just... But what, what I've learned through the other times I tried to get clean, I've never been a person who's just like used heroin once and thought, oh, right, I need to get back on the recovery bus. I've tried two times, Darren. So I tried in 2014, I went, I went with a, another uh, fellowship and I got about two months clean, I think, can't even remember. And then I was flat out. Once I pick up, I, I was flat out for a year and a half, tried NA again in 2016 when I was um, with God as well. Ended up using after about two months, flat back out using for a year and a half. And that's when everything was removed for me. My children were removed and six months later, my partner passed away, who I was with for a very, very long time. So I think God thought, right, this is what you've done in the past. So I'm going to put you in this place. I'm going to have you in fellowship with recovering addicts to help you. And then I'm going to put you back in the detox centre so you can see what's going to happen to you if you if you pick up. Wow. And then it's like that example how God doesn't let anything go to waste at all. He uses absolutely everything for, for our growth and our yeah. protection. Um, so before we wrap up, Katie, um, just any like final thoughts or encouragement for anybody that watches this that might still be dealing with and i'm not talking specifically about drugs it could be any form of addiction or anything that we're trying to work through or come away from um in our walks uh with yeshua any words of encouragement uh to strengthen somebody that might hear this in terms of uh, persevering and, and fighting through because one thing that i've i've uh that i sense from yourself is that you you have a, a great deal of endurance and perseverance and uh, a kindness and a love for other people um with that yeah any last sort of thoughts or, or sentiments towards anybody that, that that might watch this yeah i think that god's there for absolutely everybody i believe he's there on yeshua which is obviously jesus for absolutely everybody i think we're all born obviously we have free will we all take our own roles but um if you reach out to him he's there People who reach out to him, he, he he looks after people. And I just think that if you just ask him for help with the um, pure intention in your heart and, and you want help, he's going to give it you. But you've got to surrender, haven't you? You've got to, God can do everything, but you've got to do things for yourself. And I just, my faith is huge. It's massive. You know, I don't walk around with a T-shirt on. It's It's mm-hmm. not like to that extent. Not that I ever wouldn't. Um, but I believe like that if if it wasn't for God, I I I mean I can't um, I can't I haven't got a crystal ball. I always say this, so I can't see into the future. But I don't know if I'd be here because after Wayne had died and the kids had gone, I'd given up hope. That it was the worst time of me using. But um, he just does fantastic things. I got baptized as well. Right. I got baptized in 2018. I I got clean on the 26th of July 2018. That was the day when I had when I'd done the buprenorphine detox. So that's where I class it from. So that was the day when I actually had nothing in my system. And then I got baptized by Joe and Jack. I think it was September 
August, September in Lake Bala. And I wanted to do it the right way because in the Bible it says in running waters, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Running waters, so Lake Bala. And I remember that. I remember going, I was just talking to Becca before, I remember going up in the car and crying. I don't even know why. I don't understand why I was so moved. I was crying for all the things I'd done in the past. You know, I haven't been that much of a, of an, you know, I've never killed anyone or not, but I've caused massive harm. My daughters and my parents and my brother and sister and my family and people around me are harmed so much with how I was um, and harmed myself. But I just remember sobbing in the car and then going in, and it was freezing. I mean, come on, and we were in autumn or nearly, it was freezing and I was dead scared and I had Joe and Jack on, on either side of me and it was like... And then I remember when they, like, you know, put me under, submerged me, brought me up. I remember being dead warm. I think that helped me as well. So my thing is, anybody, whatever you're going through, you just have to you just have to ask him for help. Just got to ask him for help because I think personally, I, I, I have a little saying what I say to people, um, put your crown on and remember who you are. And I do that myself. And that's not meaning like, oh, I'm Katie. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. meaning put your crown on. I'm God's daughter. I'm a child of God. Amen. That's perfect. Massively. Perfect. Put your crown on and remember who you are. Remember folks. who you are. Ask him for help and he'll give it you. Perfect. Um, so with that, Katie, I just want to thank you wholeheartedly thank you. for coming on here, for sharing your story. Um, it's our hope and our heart that this uh, encourages and helps any anyone that, that, that sees this. Uh, Katie, I want to thank you for your boldness for coming on here. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I hope that the Lord continues to use you to go to strength to strength in what you do. And I'm sure that there are still mighty things that he's going to use you for in that environment. Um, so thanks again for, 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 for taking, taking the time to be with me. And it's, it's been, uh, it's been beautiful. So with that folks, that's been the, uh, the latest episode of the upper room. Thank you for joining us. We pray that this helps you, this edifies you and, um, you are willing. We'll see you again in the future. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom.